Welcome to STEM Invest Podcast, episode 60. In this episode, Dr. Peter Dunmaris talks with Daniel Kastner. Daniel is a robotics systems engineer with an eclectic background, including a BA in physics and MS in computer and systems engineering. Over the years, Daniel has spent time building undersea autonomous vehicles, internet-connected industrial equipment and aerospace systems. Of all his projects, the most challenging and rewarding has been creating mass-production home robots. He's presently Senior Hardware Engineer at Anki, a robotics and AI company in San Francisco. In 2012, Daniel co-founded Robot Garden, a community-based volunteer-run makerspace and the world's first robotics-focused makerspace. He's currently doing volunteer STEAM education through 4H with a constructivist education style. This is STEMiverse Podcast, Episode 60. STEMiverse is a podcast produced by Tech Explorations. Our mission is to help educators become awesome at teaching STEM, be it at home or in the classroom. Whether you are a professional or casual teacher teaching in a classroom or a parent or caretaker teaching at home, this podcast brings you the knowledge and experiences of practitioners, academics, entrepreneurs and lifelong learners who are passionate about education and strive every day to help our children prepare for life in a world of radical change and, why not, abundance. Daniel, welcome to Stemiverse. Thanks. Nice to be here. A uh, real pleasure to have you on because we're going to talk about robots, robotics and education, which are two of my favorite topics. Uh, so uh, as always, I'd like to invite you to tell us a few things about you, about your background uh, as a person, as an engineer, and then we'll dive straight into technology and education. Sure. So um, do you want me to go in chronological or reverse chronological order? Um it can start say uh, okay let, let's make it a bit more specific when did you first felt the need to become an engineer oh i as long as i can remember i think i've always been an engineer um you know i'm i know for a fact that my mom has uh, boxes of uh, the little uh, paper parachute men that i made when i was three years old out of paper and tape uh, and um you know, from, from then on, I've always wanted to do engineering and I've always wanted to do robots specifically. Um, you know, the thing that is really enchanting about robots is it's magic that actually works. Because, you know, what does a wizard do? A wizard takes an idea and they make it real and make it operate off on its own in the real world. And that's exactly what a robot is. It's the only way I know to actually do that is that, you know, you take your ideas, you put them in something, you do a lot of work, um, but then you have something that you thought up that actually goes off and on its own accomplishes something in the real world independence but you know from uh paper parachutes to robots it's quite a <laughs> continue right between the one it was something like an episode something you saw something that somebody said back then in your early years i i honestly don't remember um you know I, i've always wanted to do robots i mean so i've had I've had a pretty eclectic education. Hmm. Um, I was actually homeschooled all the yeah. way up through uh, college. Um, then I uh, went to Lawrence University in um, the Midwest United States for college, got a bachelor's degree in physics, which as an electrical engineer turned out to be really useful because uh, it's surprisingly, no, uh, surprisingly uh, few how many people it is who actually understand what happens inside of a transistor and uh, we like to pretend everything's digital all the time, but it isn't. Everything's actually analog. The world is still analog. Uh, so that's been a, a valuable lesson. And um, Lawrence is also a liberal arts school, uh, mm -hmm. which uh, was great for my education because, you know, they really emphasize learning to communicate well uh, there. So, um, you know, spent a lot of time improving writing uh, and other uh, communication skills there. Mm. Uh, then I went to Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in upstate New York, uh, got my master's of science in computer and systems engineering, uh, working on uh, the intersection of mesh networks and mobile robots, which was a sort of an interesting project. But by that point, I'd had about enough of academia. Uh, so I went off and uh, joined a startup company um doing uh trying to do human-sized telepresence robots 
which is uh, telepresence. So, you know, having having your own robotic avatar somewhere else in the real world instead of just doing uh, static video conferencing is still something that I firmly believe in. But uh, there are so many technical challenges that, that uh, make that uh, just it doesn't seem like it should be so hard, but it is. Um, so someday I still hope for that. Um, hopefully before jetpacks. You know, that, that was a startup experience, which is fun because I got to wear a lot of hats. I was... Uh, How long ago was that? that uh, so that was from 2008 uh, through 2011. And, uh, you know, that was a startup. It was great, uh, a little bit high stress. So I needed a break after that. So I went and worked at uh, Sandia National Laboratories, which is, uh, it's one of the United States government's national laboratories. Um, and uh, it's about as far from the startup experience as you can get, uh, which was a nice break. But um, I still wanted to do something entrepreneurial. So while I was there, I uh, co-founded, along with Andre Key, uh, who I know has been on your podcast before, um, Robot Garden, uh, which is uh, what we believe is the world's first robotics-focused makerspace. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know that was out of... Uh, a desire to be doing something more entrepreneurial, a uh, desire to be doing more with uh, robots and, um, you know, just more building things. Makerspaces are awesome. And at the time, there were already dozens of them in the San Francisco Bay Area, but um, they were all about an hour and 15 minutes from the East Bay where Andre and I lived. So we wanted something a little bit closer and uh, no one else was doing it for us. So we decided to just do it ourselves. That's it. <laughs> just make it happen like our true makeup. Yeah. You know, so we founded that. Uh, and so I uh, helped run that for a couple of years. Um, it's still uh, running today, actually, uh, with uh, New People taking it on, which is always great to see a nonprofit organization out, outlast your involvement in it. And, uh, you know, there's plans for the future there. Um, but my day job now is working at Anki, which is a uh, consumer robotics company doing uh, AI and robotics uh, for home applications. Yeah. And, you know, that's sort of an interesting challenge. It's, it's one thing to make one robot and another thing to make millions of robots and make them to a high enough quality that uh, regular people will actually uh, find them useful. Wow. Um, don't know where to start because you just covered so much uh, over the last couple of minutes uh, and a lot of it actually I want to uh, to get into it. Like for example, let's leave Robot Garden for a little later because it, it contains a strong educational element that I want to touch on and it's, it's, it's unique in the sense as he said that it, it's focusing on robots uh, plus education. I guess that's the intersection for Robot Garden and see what we can learn from it. Uh, uh, there's uh, Anki, of course, uh, that I want to have a look at uh, as well, because uh, I, I did uh, spend a, bit of, a lot of time looking at the videos on your website and the various inf- bits of information that you have and looking at the uh, robot models that are available to buy from pretty much any store here, including here in Australia. Uh, you don't have to go um, too far. Um, I wanted to look at the fundamentals, so um, maybe rewind and just to explain what is a robot and how a robot differs to general automation, like, you know, um, uh, a system that can turn the lights on and on, uh, on and off, or my automatic gardening system that it does have the ability to sense and do things. Is that a robot, for example, perhaps a very simple one, or is it something special about robots? So I, I don't know if you'll find this answer satisfying, but the one I always go to for the definition of a robot is that a a robot is an electromechanical device that doesn't work in demos. Right. <laughs> because, I mean, it's kind of like the definition of AI in computer science used to be the set of computer science problems for which no good solution is known. Right. So it's a general category then where all that fits, something that is not well it's understood. The, it's the frontier. Yeah. So... Once something is reliable, we start calling it an appliance, Mm, right? right. You know, we don't, your oven, uh, you know, there's sophisticated ovens that know when, uh, where you can put in uh, and, you know, tell it I'm cooking a pot roast and I want it to be done at 5 p.m. And it works out when to start and how long to cook it and and takes care of everything for you. Is that a robot? Well, Mm. no, it's not. We call it an appliance because Mm. it works too reliably. Show a dishwasher to, you know, a modern uh, dishwashing machine to anyone from 1950, and they would call it a robot. But we yeah. don't call a dishwasher a robot. So, so it's like a moving target then. Like our expectation is that a robot can make decisions, there's intelligence in there, 
But as long as soon as we understand exactly how it works and we can predict it, then it's not a robot anymore, right? It's an appliance. Yeah, I think that that's that's certainly been the case for a while. I think it might be we might be getting to a point where we have a new class of robots where the robots might be defined by how you interact with it. So you have a very transactional machine interface to a dishwasher. You, you load it up, you push the button, it goes. You don't have a conversation with mm -hmm. it. Um, it doesn't come and tell you things, um, but uh, you know it still thinks, sense, and acts. Um, right. the, the more useful definition of robot in the future might be more about the way they interact with humans. And so we talk about you know human-robot interaction design. And uh, one of those big things at Anki is uh, the need for robots to have emotional intelligence. Right. Um, because, you know, in order to, humans are emotional, um, we expect uh, other beings to be emotional, and we actually have an easier time understanding them if they are. Uh, right. I, I think as I, I understand the distinction that you're making now. A dishwasher, although it, it may contain intelligence to make sure that the outcome, the dishes are perfectly clean at the end of the cycle, it can read my expressions, it, it can't uh, interact with me at a more human level. But what we call a robot, whether it's like the anti-robot, for example, that is on wheels, or it's a humanoid, humanoid robot like the like Asimo, right? The Honda robot, which can walk on two it's bipedal. Um, both of those things can read our expression. So they, they've got the intelligence there, but they also have the ability to visually recognize me as perhaps the owner or the, the person standing in front of them, and then use human modes of communication like language and facial expressions. And that makes Anki a robot and the dishwasher an appliance. Would that be fair? And that's certainly part of it. I mean, Anki is also in sort of a special position where, you know, we're selling things to people who want to have things called robots. Um, right. Like, so it's to a certain extent, it's a robot if you want it to be a robot. Right. Right. If, if we like, um, there's another thing is I was talking to my father yesterday and I was trying to understand now the misconceptions perhaps or misunderstanding of uh how technology is evolving today by uh, I guess anybody who's not a roboticist is probably having similar trouble understanding what this all what this technology is at the moment and how it's evolving uh, can you give us a range of devices and technologies that can that are, are called robots uh, by the people that actually make them. And I'm thinking here, say industrial robots, which all they are is like a, a robotic arm with, I don't know, five or six degrees of freedom that can pick things up and put them in the right place. And we call that a robot. And we've got cars that are becoming intelligence, intelligent and uh, able to drive themselves like a Tesla self-driving car. Uh, we call that, I guess, a robot as well. Then there's Anki. Uh, which has got uh, the ability to uh, understand emotion in some way. We can talk about that in more detail later. We've got uh, Siri and Amazon Alexa and software robots. We still call them robots, I believe. Uh, what is the, the common thread among all those? In a lot of those, I think the common thread is actually the, the ability to interact with, with the real world is really the part of it. Um, so, you know, the, the difficult thing in robotics is always how constrained your domain has to be, right? Uh, a dishwasher has a very constrained domain, right? It's, it's literally a box and yeah. it only cares about the things that are inside of itself. It controls the, uh, almost everything. And so, you know, you, you might load it up with different things, but it's not that difficult of a problem. Uh, an industrial robot actually has to deal, you know, you know pe people uh, often poo-poo industrial robots as being like, these are disappointing robots, but, you know, they're really quite impressive. There's a lot of things that they have to be able to react to for safety. Um, you know, you you have to notice when, you know, the, the large uh, robots assembling cars, you know, they, they have load cells in their end effectors so that, you know, if they try and pick something up and uh, either the fail or, I don't know, the metal buckles or something like that, they, you know, they know it doesn't weigh what it's supposed to weigh at this moment. Something has gone wrong. It's time to stop. Um, and, you know, that, that trend in manufacturing is, is continuing to try, you know, trying to get more towards co-working robots where it's safe for humans to be in the environment with them. They have to be able to sense things around that. 
one of the things I didn't mention in my background is I also worked for Miller Electric uh, welding company mm. for a while uh, doing arc welding equipment and, you know, welding robots also they're, they are continuously uh, sensing the environment that they're, they're welding and reacting to it. And, you know, any, any time when you're interacting with a world where, you know, in traditional programming is like you're trying you say you're programming a chess robot or, or sorry, a chess program, right. It's like, you know, knight to rook seven, that always does the knight to rook seven. That all, if, if the knight's in the right place at the beginning, it's always in the right place at the end. That happens 100% of the time. Nothing can happen, possibly go wrong. But, you know, if, if you're playing with a real chess board and you have a robot arm, there's a thousand ways that that interaction can go wrong. And so um, I think the common thread in robotic technology is uh, being able to deal with a real world where things don't always work the way mm. that you hope they will. Um, right. And, you know, that's that's true of industrial robots. That's true of uh, robot vacuum cleaners. That's true of uh, autonomous cars. Uh, obviously have to have, yeah. uh, you know, fallback upon fallback of ways to deal with uh, unexpected situations. And, uh, you know, Anki's robots definitely do um, because uh, we're uh, interacting with uh, people, in some cases, children. And, uh, you know, there's, uh, it, there's a classic program, in, or sorry, a classic uh, problem in... Um, localization so like slam simultaneous localization mapping uh one of the one of the classic problem statements is called robot kidnapping <laughs> so you have a, you have this robot it's made a map of the house and uh suddenly something happens and it's moved from one place to another place and, you know at anki that happens to our robots all the time yeah you just pick it up and put yeah pick it up and move it that, i mean that that's you know from from a from an academic standpoint that's the robot kidnapping problem but it, it it's it's a problem that happens to us many times a day so the robot has to have sensors. Like it's the awareness that makes a robot a robot and a dishwasher a dishwasher. Actually, I should say increased awareness uh, of its external environment. Not uh, the internal thing is is a given, right? The, the robot needs to know its own operational parameters, whether its hand is up or down, or whether its uh, cameras are turned on. So I'd call that internal awareness. Mm -hmm. uh, but then. A robot has increased situational awareness. So it's got a lot of sensors looking at its environment and it knows where it is in relation to other things in its environment. So would that single word help us understand the difference between a dishwasher and a real robot? Uh, maybe, maybe. Um, part of it, yeah. You know, the, the, I think the other part of it is being able to take appropriate action, mm -hmm. right? Um, it's it's great to have sensors that can that can tell you whether you're in the the environment you think you're in. You know, your, your refrigerator may have some idea whether it's inside or outside your house because your refrigerator probably measures the exterior temperature, as well as its internal one. But there's nothing it can do with that information. Right. So what about a goal? So a robot has a goal. Perhaps it's a goal that its human operator has set for it, but it's got a goal. And then there's the actions that you mentioned that it needs to decide on with some degree of freedom to achieve that goal? Uh, that, that's an interesting case. Um, I, I might actually say that uh, of things that people call robots, having a goal might actually be a count against you. Um, so, uh, you know, one thing this is maybe a slightly tangential to what you're asking, but uh, you look at a lot of robotics companies and uh, many of them fail by falling into what I call the platform gap, which is, you know, I, I like building robots. I'm gonna build an awesome robot and it's going to be a platform that people are going to develop software for. And so somebody else is going to figure out what this robot's for. Uh, and then, you know, that, that to this date has not worked out for any company I'm aware of, um, that, which is not what Anki does. You know, Anki, uh, all of our robots have uh, SDKs that allow hmm. people to uh, write their own programs for them. But all of them come out of the box with a purpose and, uh, you know, some, some either game or utility that they fulfill that uh, makes them valuable to people. Um, and I think that's what that's what makes them products. Right. Yeah. Um, because and so yeah, yeah it, there's so many things that people like to call robots. They're just like, well, I don't know what its purpose is. So it's cool. In the case of Anki, uh, it's a robot because it's useful out of the box. Uh, but on the other hand, there are robotic platforms that give you the tools, perhaps sensor arrays, programming interfaces, things of that sort a bit of hardware that allow you to create a robot out of the, or build on top of the robot platform. And what you're saying, if I understand right, is that those technologies are commercially not that successful at the moment uh, because I guess the, the, the education layer perhaps uh, is missing or something else is missing. Is that right? No, uh, it's, 
No, because um, you a, a platform isn't a product. Yeah. Right. A platform is something that somebody else can make a, a, a product out of. I mean, with some exceptions. Obviously, Amazon is very good at uh, Amazon Web Services platform. They provide a platform. Yeah. Right. But that that's a very well understood situation where where it's clear what you need. So it's a frontier, in other words, uh, in the yeah. Hard, hardware is not the same world. Uh, in order to have a robot that is uh, functional and cost effective, it needs to have been designed for a purpose. Um, right. You know. iRobot makes multiple, you know, they make a, ro a mopping robot and they make a vacuuming robot and they don't look anything alike, right? I mean, they, they both have motors and wheels and, and sensors, but they're not, it's, it's not like they have one sort of home cleaning robot platform mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in that one company. They don't have one home cleaning robot platform and then they have two versions of it. It's like, no, this is the mopping robot. This is the cleaning robot. These are different things. It seems like it's the, the age of exploration when it comes to robots because the technology has advanced. So now we've got the Internet of Things, which means like Amazon mentioned Amazon. It, it provides a platform where or IBM Watson, where you can tap on extraordinary amounts of codified knowledge that your robot can use to make decisions about the world. And those are platforms as well. But then on the other hand, I, I see robots Uh, of all shapes, all kinds, all sizes, like robots that walk on six legs, that fly, that go in space, that go underwater, uh, that dig in mountains, that live in cyberspace only. So all the situational awareness is inside cyberspace, inside the internet. There's like an incredible array of variation in robots right now. And I wanted to ask you, like, From your perspective as a roboticist who and entrepreneur as well, what do you see as the frontier right now, if there is one frontier, right? What is the cutting edge of robotics, or perhaps um, you know the, the problem that is like a holy grail that if you solve that robotics problem, then you go up to the next steps, like going from analog mobile telephony to 3G or 4G. Is there something like that? In robotics? I actually, honestly, personally, I don't think there's moments like that in any technology. I mean, the, sure, sure, there, are, there are, are moments of discovery where you find something new, but there's, you know, all of them take work. Mm. And there's been very few developments. I can't think of any example that has led to instant change across an entire industry, right? Maybe it's more, more theoretical. Like I'm thinking, um, like a, something like in physics, the boson particle, for example, you've, you've set up a whole uh, lab in Switzerland. Accelerator to try and find that one thing that's predicted by theory, and then now that we found it, well, okay, that that helps us, you know, build the next uh, unifying theory in physics. Is it something like that in robotics? I mean, uh, I think there's a whole there's a whole series of them. Um, you know, so so when I was in school and starting to do robotics, the big problem was sensing. There just mm. were not good enough sensors. Mm. So many of the problems. I mean, the The reason why, you know, my the, the robotics part of my master's thesis was done pretty much, you know, done as a toy problem was that truly sensing the environment was just plain too hard, right? Like you, you could maybe get some sensors that would do it, that would be, yeah. um, uh, be uh, you know, cost $10,000 and then, you know, you could have one sensor and it would, would help you a bit. But it was just too hard. Um, you know, think think back to the drone revolution. You know, the 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 thing that enabled the drone revolution was cell phones, right? That's why the the technology became possible. You know, it used to be that an IMU cost ten thousand dollars and wasn't as good as the IMU that costs ten cents today. Today, yeah. Uh, and you know, that is an absolute. So so that is the kind of thing that you know it didn't literally create an industry overnight. But the fact that that sensor exists did enable a whole new set of technology. Yeah. Um, Cell phone processors, uh, in a very similar way, have enabled a lot of new technology because you take in, you know, the 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 computational power that used to be in a server and uh, put it in something that fits in your pocket and runs on a battery. Yeah. Um, so um, the cell phones have actually probably been the biggest help, uh, or smartphones, I should say, have been the biggest help to robotics uh, in uh, my career. The other one is, of course, like I said, sensing. So. You know, there were uh, in back in uh, 2010 when I was working uh, on telepresence robots. You know, we could get uh, one degree of freedom lidar that would you know give us one slice of the world, and that was that was what we could get at uh, still uh, kind of an expensive price point. And uh, now you can get you know chip 
time of flight sensors that give you a two-dimensional depth image or you know it take, takes an image of the world in uh, three dimensions and uh, just gives you a vast amount more information um, and those cost less than those uh, 1d lidar scanners uh, used to um, and uses less power and is smaller um, so so sensing is, is a huge part of it I w if I had to place a bet as to what the next enabling technology for robotics is going to be, um, uh, it, I would actually probably say battery technology mm. um, yeah. because uh, actually doing things requires energy. And uh, unless you can come up with an application where it's okay for your robot to sit on the dock most of the time, um, and there certainly exists applications like that. Uh, then uh, battery life is going to be a big deal. Yeah, because robots tend to become more autonomous over time, right? Uh, like the Anki robot needs to be able to move around. It won't be very practical to do that if it's tied to a USB cable or PowerPoint. Yep. So batteries. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, com computation is still a thing that's that's getting better. The, you know, the, the smartphone processors have improved things. Moore's, Moore's law is not really keeping up exactly anymore. Mm -hmm. But at the mm -hmm. same time, we are still uh, finding ways to use things like GPUs and there's still uh, improvements there. Yeah. Certain algorithms can be moved there. Deep neural network processing, which is uh, sort of being lumped into the AI buzzword these days, yeah. um, is also makes a big difference. Um, to specialize, uh, specialized hardware to assist the robot in making, I guess, fast and better decisions in specific areas like recognize, visually recognize an object um, or learn something through a, like a dedicated neural network, perhaps. So those are now can be implemented, uh, specialized hardware in order to, to deal with the problem of Moore's law slowing down. Mm -hmm. Um, that's great. Like, uh, from from what you say, what I understand is that, uh, as expected, you know, in engineering, uh, a lot of things have to happen in order to get a single product that works, that solves a problem or multiple problems. Uh, it, it's not a matter of just a, a, a single breakthrough that transforms the uh, uh, the the industry although that may happen but it's, it's very rare it's like the internet only evolved once right and the transistor only evolved once and you, you, it does happen but it's rare mm -hmm. yeah um, I, I wanted to uh, switch to Anki now because we've got like a, a robot that you played a, a role in building based on uh, everything that you've learned and all your experiences and at this point in time it's accumulated to a robot uh, so can you tell us what makes Anki, and there's a few models, you can tell us about them if you wish, what makes Anki different to other models? And uh, while you're talking, I, I might share my screen. I'm sorry, di different from other? Uh, for, from other robots. Um, wh what is special about it? So, uh, I don't know, other robots is maybe too, too broad <laughs> category. Oh, you but, don't worry about it. Just, um, just focus yeah, on, let me, on the Let me talk, yeah. talk about yeah, what, what makes Anki different is, um, I, I think, our approach, which is, uh, you know, Anki is a very uh, tightly integrated company. We do uh, our own, all of our own engineering, and we have a, a really broad team. It's the only place I've ever been where you can, you can walk around the, uh, the building and you can meet uh, people who's spent a career doing toys, people who've spent a career doing consumer electronics, people who've spent a career doing animation, uh, you know, people who've spent uh, a career doing uh, video games, and you know, it's all of these different fields are coming together to to make to make our robots. So, uh, you know, Vector is our most recent uh, robot, which is a, a home utility robot. It's very small, right? I can see this picture yeah. compared to the yeah. It's tiny. So there's, there's a couple of reasons why it's small. One is that uh, being small makes a lot of things easier. It's uh, like like I said, easier. Or sorry, earlier, um, being a successful robot it, right now is all about having a sufficiently constrained domain. You know, Anki's first product to market were uh, that was uh, called Drive, and that was uh, a racing game where you had these little cars that were about uh, this long. Uh, you know, two or three inches long, uh, running around on a racetrack, and you can control them with your phone, but it was all app-driven, and the game knew where the cars were and knew how the cars were interacting, and so you could have uh, 
both some of the cars be controlled completely by the game rather than by another player and mm-hmm. also have virtual interactions between the cars where you know you sh- you, sh- you shoot a virtual gun from one one car to the other and then the game causes that car to simulate being damaged but you know that was a sufficiently constrained area that at the time we could we could take it on it's, yeah. it's cars on a track then cosmo we broke that uh, a little bit more and uh, made it uh, a tabletop game playing robot mm-hmm. um and then uh you know ve- vector is the the next step uh beyond that where you know it's really intended to be a uh, a robot companion that uh you know is is something that you have around the house that uh is is uh just nice to be around in the same way that that a pet is um but also you can you know you can uh use it for utilities like uh checking the weather setting mm-hmm. timers etc and you know you, and like, you can play games uh, with it yeah, um, I like how you've got a blackjack app, which are, uh, you know, my first mobile phone, it was a Nokia, I can't remember the model, maybe 3210, something like that. Uh, it had a, a very simple game, I think it was Snake on it. So uh, it was one of the addictive features of those early technologies, the mobile phones. Uh, mm-hmm. You are like... Uh, space age engineers and you've got here like face recognition technology on this tiny robot and then you put blackjack on it what was the decision behind that so so, so the reason we put blackjack on yeah so the so when we were trying to decide you know vector is a platform that will grow um you, let, let me actually go back a little bit to you mentioned one of the thing with being small yeah. um which is being small makes it non-threatening is, mm-hmm. is part of it um you know, pe- people are definitely concerned about uh, robots and and you know industrial machines certainly are are, are scary. But you know, being being small makes it non non threatening uh, and means that you can pick it up and move it around. Um, but also, it helps us set a expectation that we can live up to. I haven't actually seen any research on this, but I have a personal theory that people generally peg. The, the, their first expectation of the intelligence of a robot is based on animals they know of that are about the same size. Yeah, right. Oh, so if you make a robot the size of a gerbil, it only has to be better than a gerbil to be impressive. <laughs> if you make a robot the size of a person, it has to be as good as a, people expect it to be as good as a person. Um, huh. And you know, that's, that's yeah. not an expectation we can live up to. So it, it's going to grow in size, uh, if you understand what you're saying, as its intelligence is growing, abilities grow, then obviously you'll be able to increase it, its size to do more things. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, as its capabilities in, increase, it'll also, uh, it, it will need to be more sophisticated and, and have more uh, ability to interact with the world. And uh, it'll be worth getting bigger. So what I see here, you've got a couple of pages. So the first one is just an introduction to the robot and it shows some of its capabilities out of the box. So you can talk to it and uh, you can ask him. So it's a boy, apparently. Mm-hmm. You can ask him about the weather and it will tell you. It's got a speaker. You can ask him to set a timer. It will do that and take photographs, play blackjack. And, and there's a bunch of other things here. So it's got a calendar. It can take you, t- tell you about what's up ahead. But then you've got another page for developers. And uh, that's where you talk about the software development kit that mm-hmm. without needing a PhD in robotics, it can actually get Anki, um, uh, which one is this? Uh, so that's Vector. Cosmo. There's, a, there's not oh, a page SDK, but... Sure. Uh, it's okay. It can get the, one of the Anki robots that is compatible with the SDK to do unique, uh, to implement unique capabilities, right? And it can use all of its sensors. So there's vision, like this camera, this, this cameras, uh, yep. microphones, uh, location sensors, I guess, uh, and lots of other things. You can program it in Python, uh, like, what are some of the amazing things that people that you know about, like your your customers, have done with Anki in education? Doesn't have to be education, like in any field, something that you are really proud of that somebody has done with your robots. So, with Cosmo, one of the things that was sort of the most uh, surprising is that people use the SDK to make Cosmo into a, an actor, um, and there's there's uh, quite a lot of YouTube channels out there. Uh, with, uh, with with videos starring uh, Cosmo. So Cosmo is like placing a movie, right? And the uh, programmer or the director will write a script for Cosmo and then Cosmo will just play the role, right? 
Yes, yes. <laughs> so that, that that was a that was an interesting surprise. You know, we we've got uh, you know pe- people are doing all kinds of different things uh, with it now. It's it's great to see it in classrooms. You know, I've been uh, so in, in addition to the Python uh, SDK for Cosmo and Vector, uh, Cosmo also supports uh, a block based programming language directly in the app now, um, which is great for younger kids. And you know, it's you think about things like Scratch. It's it's one thing to make a, a little kitten move around on the screen. But it's actually way, even if it's from a programming perspective, exactly the same thing. It's way cooler to make a uh, a, a robot move around in the real world. Yeah. And then besides that, we've uh, in both the Python SDK and the um, block-based programming, you know, we've given an, uh, access to high-level functions. So um, you look at most uh, robotic platforms out there. Um, there'll be a, a there'll be a function for like get a frame from the camera. But you know we we have uh, functions for things like tell me the x y coordinates of any faces in the frame huh. that, that you can see right now, um, or uh, and then you know another uh, function like how many face. people in this frame or can you be more granular? Can you say find uh, an, an object that give it a sample like of an apple for example? Here's a sample. Can you find anything that looks like this apple in this frame? Like how detailed can you get? So, so for for Cosmo specifically, um, you know, the the SDK is based around the things that Cosmo understands. So, uh, Cosmo, un, uh, you we give you uh, an API to get uh, the raw data if you want. So, if you if you want to get the raw frames out of the camera and uh, run them through uh, your own, uh, say, say you do actually have a PhD in robotics or, you know, even uh, just really like tinkering, you can uh, get the raw frames and you can run them through your own, you know, neural net processing or whatever uh, way you want to do it yeah. and uh, recognize apples. But um, for the things that Cosmo just understands from uh, our engine, which are uh, basically faces and the cubes that come with the robot, we give you very high level functions. So for faces, you know, you can see essentially where they are. For the cubes, you get things like you can get the uh, exact uh, 3D pose of the of the cube, and then we give you access to uh, things like path planning. So you can you don't have to uh, know how to to you know turn the motor specifically to drive in a uh, along a smooth path. You can just say I want to drive over to this position relative to the cube. And right. the path planner that's in the engine will just take care of all the details for you. And you can do um, uh, much more. Uh, you you can get in you, into writing those sophisticated behaviors. Yeah, there's also uh, pet detection. Pet detection. Yeah, I'm, um, as you're talking, I'm going through your SDK here. I'm looking at the API. It's very interesting. Like uh, I did not expect to see this as part of the SDK. So uh, you have anticipated that people just like you know youtube people put the dog videos and cat videos this is a very important driver of technology so there's a pets class <laughs> with all functionality here that you can detect uh, einstein for example the dog and uh it's it's amazing and this is uh what would you say in terms of generation is like the second generation of the sdk because um uh it evolves over the time yeah, so we actually released the uh, uh, Python SDK first, and then the block-based programming. So version two, oh, three, yeah. Yeah. SDK version one point four eight. Yep. Great. Um, and uh, Vector has a similar SDK. So I don't know if you can comment on this. Uh, it, it, like it could be proprietary information for Anki, but like what what is in your roadmap in the next two three years in terms of how these robots will evolve and what kind of features might they have you know to take us to the next step of this evolution well so so the existing robots uh we're going to continue uh improving them so um the the latest uh release of uh the cosmo app for instance um because we saw that because it's an emotive and an expressive robot, people wanted to use it for those purposes. Um, we released a, a variant on the block-based programming language specifically for making Cosmo act out stories. Mm. So, uh, you know, that that's one of the things that we just released on there. And we really uh, use uh, the the block-based programming as a, as a showcase in uh, Cosmo, where some of the games that you can actually play with Cosmo, uh, they're 
uh, are written in the block-based programming language. And so you can play the game with your robot and then you can look inside and see how that game was made. Right. So this, we can learn, yeah. Yep. Um, Vector is, you know, it's a, it's a cloud connected, uh, always on home robot. So, you know, it's, it's going to continue to get more utility features. It's going to continue to get smarter. One of the recent, recent updates we just did for uh, Vector is the vision system now recognizes its hands explicitly. People are actually really difficult to, to understand as a computer vision problem. It's, uh, you know, we're not just spheres of a uniform color um, or, or uh, 2D barcodes or anything like that. So, you know, now, now Vector understands hands when he sees them right. um, and can, can so interact practically with hands. Like, go this way, like if you say... We, we're not, we don't have f full gesture, but, uh, you know, it's um, before it only recognized people in the scene as faces. Yeah. Now it recognizes people from faces or hands. And so, you know, if it sees a hand, then it knows, you know, there's somebody nearby. Trying, you know, there's, there's kinds of interactions to do with well. that. Um, and, you know, I've seen it do some really cute things like, you know, just, I have Vector on the table. I happen to put my hand down and, you know, Vector drives up and taps me on the hand. And it's, it's just sort of a really nice little adorable, adorable moment. Um, Did you expect that? Like, was it part of his programming that you had put in there or was it a little unexpected? Uh, so, so I had to ask, um, I had to ask uh, the guys on the behavior set. I'm in the hardware team. So, you know, I, I, I don't really do behaviors myself, but yeah, so so uh, yeah, it is actually an interaction. Like when he sees a hand that he can get to, to go up and 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 uh, tap on it. All right. Um, it's like but, you know, there's lots of emergent do. behaviors yeah. as well um, that that right. you don't really expect. So you know, vector vector's only going to get smarter. Um, you know, more more uh, utilities are going to be available, and uh, that's the way that's going. And then Anki in general, you know, we we are an AI and robotics company. We started in toys because that was a a, a domain we could actually tackle. But uh, we have every intention of making ever more sophisticated and capable robots. Yeah. Don't forget the I think the prime directive or a sim of laws, um, <laughs> the three laws of robotics. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so so those those are those are nice laws for a science fiction author and terrible yeah. laws for a programmer. Um, so like Tesla is having this problem right now, and other you know, autonomous uh, car manufacturers very yeah have to deal with those issues. But I guess that's uh, questions for another podcast episode. Mm -hmm. um, just as a last comment, uh, I'd like to switch to Robot Garden for a few minutes. But uh, as a last comment, I'm, I'm thinking that. If you or through your SDK, like uh, it, it, I can see it's possible that you can integrate different uh, artificial intelligence platforms. Like you can connect an Anki robot to uh, IBM Watson, and then tap on on that amazing capability there. So that would just another exponential increase in capability for the tiny little thing. Stuff like that. Yep. You've, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> if it can be done, it, it will be done. Somebody said, and. Um, uh, it's probably uh, already done. Uh, if it just occurred to me now, somebody has done it. So uh, awesome. Thank you for all that. Uh, I'd like to switch to uh, Robot Garden now. Mm -hmm. And um, like in past episodes uh, with other guests, uh, we spoke a lot about uh, makerspaces and things that you can do there. Uh, makerspaces, as most of us understand them, like a, a place where you can find making equipment like 3D printers and uh, stations for assembling electronics and uh, education component. Of course, uh, we had in, in one case, we had uh, a guest who spoke about um, uh, a biology uh, makerspace in New York. Um, in your case, Robot Garden is a makerspace, but the focus there is on robots. So could you tell us a bit about it, the inspiration behind it, and, and uh, some of the resources you're getting, and why robots only? Why not you know, general, a general makerspace that also does robots? Yeah, so let, let me clear that up. So sure. the, the reason for robots is, um, you know, the people who were there at the beginning, we were particularly into robots. That's what we wanted to build. And it seemed like a uh, uh, a cool uh, way to get started. Um, you know, ro robots attract attention. They definitely do that. And you know, for me, education was very important to it as well. And uh, I've always thought, it, um, you know, ro robots are 
uh, a really cool way to get uh, into education. But then when you say robots versus general purpose, well, think about what you need in order to build robots. You need electronics and you need mechanical engineering and you need uh, human machine interaction design and you need software. You need, by the time you've established all of the things that um, you need in order to make robots, you've built up a lab that can build anything. Uh-huh. Right. So like robot is a great tool or a great excuse, I'd say, to learn all sorts of other things that eventually can lead you to building a robot or working with a robot. Yeah. There's so much that goes in it, right? Hardware, software, design, um, psychology. <laughs> mm-hmm. right? So, okay, yeah, I get it. I get it. So uh, who, who started? Was it yourself and Andra? Was it that you have other partners to begin with? Uh, it was myself and Andra uh, at the beginning, and then other people came in. Uh, you know, we've we've had uh, just, just like any other volunteer-run organization, we've had mm-hmm. uh, lots of people running it. Um, a gentleman named Tom Mangers, the the current president, uh, he's doing great things with it. And you know, the the direction that we're um, we're moving is uh, to try and be more of a, uh, a a STEAM education hub. So one one thing that may be different from robot uh, in Robot Garden from some of the other makerspaces you've talked to is it's always been a 100% nonprofit, 100% mm-hmm. volunteer run. Uh, robot Garden's never had any paid staff to this date, uh, though we always hope to be able to grow to the point where we can <laughs> can yeah. change that. But um, one of the things with being a volunteer uh, run organization is like all volunteer run organizations are always uh, competing for volunteers. And um, education is particularly, uh, can be particularly difficult because there's, um, it, it takes a lot of work to teach classes, honestly. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the good news is that, yeah, the, the good news is that there are uh, a lot of organizations out there that are doing this. But um, surprisingly, they, at least in our uh, part of the world, there aren't a lot of facilities that are there with the purpose of just making it easy for you know these existing educational uh, volunteer organizations to have a space to teach classes to have the resources like the the robots and the 3d printers and so on to use um and so that's a big part of what robot garden is trying to do right now is is be a be a hub for steam education yeah. uh, so i can see here you've got uh, events uh, the one i was mm-hmm. just uh, looking at uh girl scouts robotic badges uh, in january that's tomorrow right a couple of days from now. A couple of days. Um, and you've got uh, microcontrollers on the same day. Hmm. Uh, microcontrollers, electronic special interest group. So you are organizing a lot of events. So that's one of the roles or one of the ways by which uh, Robot Garden operates. But you also have memberships. So what what's a membership? Is it like uh, a maker would like a space where, you know, we've got all that equipment to use and uh, it's pay uh, an amount and access it? Or how does it work? Yeah, so our, our model has been that um, every everyone uh, is invited to come to uh, events. Uh, sometimes we have classes which are paid, which allows us to uh, pay instructors, pay for materials, and, and yeah. uh, generate a little bit of revenue. But in, order to, in order to use equipment, you have to have a membership. So if, if you want to use right. Robot Garden-owned uh, fabrication equipment or Robot Garden-owned um, uh, robots, then at that point you need to you need to have a membership, right? Um, and that uh, yeah. you know is just to keep the equipment maintained and the lights on. Absolutely, and uh, the cost is also very low. I so saw in an individual membership is fifty dollars a month, and you do get a lot of in, a lot of um, return on that investment. I wanted to ask you since you, you have the experience of starting uh, a make a space like this, uh, what was your biggest challenge to begin with and uh, what would you have done differently if there's something mm-hmm. um, it's, a, it's an interesting question uh, I don't think I could have you know it's, it's, it's always nice to look back at 2020 hindsight and yeah. say what would you have done differently knowing what you know now but uh, I didn't so I'm not sure I would have done anything differently uh, if you were to do this again like you know, as entrepreneurs I, I've done like, my first startup was terrible <laughs> Yeah, I would. I would probably try and start more in a club model. Right. Um, you know, uh, I, I uh, personally have a, have a tendency to just jump in and uh, hope for the best. And so, you know, we we started as a makerspace open to the public, 
and uh, you know have have tried to uh, grow from there. You know, we we started having uh, open access hours uh, for members and and uh, classes, and we basically you know we did we didn't uh, didn't really do a soft open. We just uh, yeah. got got it applied for grants, got some equipment, lined up some space space at, uh, on a, a, a shared use agreement, and started running it. Um, if I was going to start a makerspace again, I, I would probably try and start it on more of a club model, um, and and build up a, a core group first before opening it to the public. Why? Why is that? Just because I think it gives you a little bit of a, a time to get a solid footing. Right. Um, make sure that that uh, you know the equipment you have, you know all the ins and outs. On the other hand, because we we started open to the public, that actually uh, and with a with an educational focus, that gave us the opportunity to apply for grants, which funded some of our initial equipment purchases and actually yeah. funded a lot of our purchases over the years. You know, th- there's upsides and downsides. It, it, it was uh, definitely a wild ride doing it the way we did, but yeah. uh, you know, there's there's uh, the website. I'm not actually sure if it's still alive. Uh, hackerspaces.org which is sort of a, a worldwide directory of, of uh, hackerspaces or makerspaces. Um, and, you know, one of the things you see on there is that there's just about as many different ways to make a makerspace as there are different makerspaces. Yeah. Um, uh, it's, it's interesting. Uh, I, I ask uh, the same or similar question uh, to everyone who is running a makerspace and uh, have interviewed on Stemiverse and I always get different answers, <laughs> which goes to show that there's many different ways to uh, uh, skin a cat or start a makerspace. So yeah, hackerspaces.org still exists. Yeah, check it out. Um, got a few more minutes left, um, Daniel, and um, just have a couple of other questions to shift gears now. Um, sure. I was looking at your profile and you sound like a very busy person, um, which I find very common among engineers. So first I want to ask you, what does your holiday look like or your weekend? <laughs> uh, my weekend is, you know, sp- spending time with my kids and, uh, working on projects around the house these days. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, one, what I, uh, uh, my my long term projects is um, uh, my family loves uh, gardening. Um, we have uh, something of a, a small urban farm. I live far enough outside of San Francisco that that's possible. So you know we have a garden. We have chickens uh, and and uh, so on. And um, you know so so uh, that that's a that's a lot of work, but it's really rewarding. And uh, someday I'd like to to get into trying to make that a little bit more robotic. Yeah, automation. Uh, yeah. yeah, we've got a backyard here and it's um, maintaining uh, back in the front, actually. We, we, we live next to the mountain, so uh, the soil is so fertile that before you know it, like I thought I did the lawn last week and now it's about this high and the trees have got like um, full of lemons dropping on the ground. I've got to pick them up and there's spiders everywhere and that happens very quickly. So it's, it's the reason I have to leave where I'm sitting now to go out and tidy up a bit. So that, that's definitely something we've got in common. How much of your, you know, your engineering background spills in other parts of your life? Like, you know, spending time with your kids, for example, do you tend to do activities that uh, you wouldn't call them strictly engineering? Like, do you play Minecraft with your kids, for example, or do you do Monopoly or drawing or something else? So, um, it, it it depends. Um, my kids aren't aren't really old enough for uh, Minecraft yet, but um, you know they they do love Legos, and I love doing mm-hmm. Legos with them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know um, they uh, enjoy doing uh, block programming, yeah. for example, which is it's it's really nice when you get to work on something and and have your kids appreciate it. But uh, one of my daughters is wants to be an astronaut, uh, <laughs> and uh, one of wow. them wants to be. Uh, a, uh, a as far as I can tell, she's only two and a half, but uh, she seems to want to be a veterinarian. Uh, and uh, you know, my my uh, uh, son is into his sports, and uh, but also into anything to do with tools. So wow. you know, uh, I try and involve them in whatever I'm doing around the house. But uh, you know, it depends on what they're interested in. Yeah. Um, everything I think they all have at this point an engineering mindset. They. Uh, uh, you know, where, you know, you, you look at something and you try and see is like, well, how can I solve this problem? Mm. 
what, what, what's going on here? What could I improve? Do they actually, like, because it happens with me a lot, uh, I fix everything pretty much around here. So people tend to not try to, to fix anything. They just ask me <laughs> to fix it <laughs> for them. Is that something that plagues you as well? Uh, you know, probably not because as you mentioned, I'm so busy. I'm just, uh, I'm, unfortunately, I'm not around as much as, uh, as they wish I was. And so, uh, that's been good for them learning to fix things themselves. Excellent. Yeah. So not being available is actually a good thing when it comes to problem solving. It can be. Um, and you know, one, one of the interesting things is, uh, they, they, uh, the older ones are all obsessed now with the idea that they can find bugs in things so you know whenever they play with cosmo or vector they if they see a behavior that they don't think is right it's like i found a bug <laughs> uh, and and you know part of it is i think just that they like that they can understand that this is something yeah. that's made yeah. by by uh, uh you know by people and part of it's you know kids love to find ways to prove that adults are fallible absolutely that's great yeah and um, so you know i've got i've got a team of qa engineers <laughs> Um, I, I'm having a similar experience with my kids. I've got a nine-year-old boy and uh, a ten-year-old boy as well. And, uh, you know, they're working on their computer or the iPod and it could be playing a game or a drawing program or whatever. And if an element of the user interface, for example, a button is not descriptive or it doesn't do what it they thought they would do or it crashes for example the application might run out of memory it just blamed the engineers how could they let that go through qa like seriously um <laughs> we have to report this we've got, to, we've got to the help desk so they're really crazy about uh, uh the quality of the technology that they use uh where when i was their age i probably wouldn't make much of it of course i didn't have any of that but okay the video recorder um, didn't quite finish the recording for some reason i wouldn't think about what the engineers have done but these kids can see the connection between the humans that design the software or the hardware and the end result and how they use it it's the whole system so uh, the awareness is uh, quite amazing um, i find um okay i've got a, a couple of last questions and uh sure. yeah we are pretty much uh, on the on the hour with that. Um, let's see. Ah, yeah, you're an engineer. So what application or technology you would be unable to live without? Something that organizes your life, perhaps, some, a tool that you use to get your work done, anything that you can't live without? Mm. Well, huh. <laughs> an interesting open-ended question. Um, you know, I... I really like the ability to, uh, at this point, I, I'm, I'm very reliant on the fact that I can take an infinite number of notes uh, on my phone or my computer. And I don't, I never have to worry about how many pictures I've taken or, or how, or how many yeah. things I've recorded, or this is like, I can just put it all in there and then I can search for it and, and, and uh, be able to find the thing that I did last Tuesday uh, when I was in this, you know, thus and such location. Um, and it, it's it's all synced between devices and it's all searchable. And I think if I didn't have that ability, it would take a long yeah. time to adapt. It's like perfect memory, right? This is my, you know, external brain. It's yeah. like all I have to remember is where I put the notes. So it's your smartphone. to remember the contents. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, it's very true. And, uh, you know, with robotics and robotic technology in the smartphone, I, I find I'm, I'm experimenting with Google Home now, and I've been using Siri and try to get, you know, to become a power user with those tools. And it really can transform my productivity. Um, not the basic stuff, like just play music. Okay, no problem. Tell me what the calendar is. But the, the power user stuff can transform your productivity over time. So thank you for that. Mm -hmm. um, hmm. For anyone in our audience, and our audience at this point uh, has a lot of teachers in them, but also a lot of makers, uh, mm -hmm. people that are interested in robotics, what is a good book resource for them to get started? You know, with real stuff, not science fiction, but uh, a reference book for robotics technology today uh, for a beginner. Do you have something in mind that would, uh, that would you recommend to people interested in robotics? Hmm. Uh, it's a tough one. I'm trying to, I'm trying to think off the top of my head. Um, it's, it's tough. I, I'm very much into hands-on learning. Um, and of robotics course. are sort of very much a, a, a uh, it's a hands-on 
industry. Uh, so do it. Don't read. So, so I would How say, would you yeah, you know, to that? I, I would, I would recommend either probably, you know, I'm biased, obviously, but it, but Anki or Vector, you know, Vector or Cosmo or um, you know the Lego Mindstorm set is yeah. a big part of where I got my start with the original RCX. But then, you know, the newer the newer ones are also amazing, and those are those are kind of fun because you get to build the robot and program it and so yeah. you get to see some of the trade-offs that gets made it get made there where it's like well it's easier to program if i build it like this but i can solve this it's hard to build like that so i'm going to solve it in software you know you get to see some of those trade-offs with legos so hands-on learning like get a robot uh, of course anki is obviously a very good option but there's many others out there see what fits your budget and uh, the kind of um uh, learning that you want to achieve look at the resources i guess as well that's important when you're getting started so you want uh sample code you want um e example videos uh things like that and see what fits best with your skill level yeah. presently and one, of the, one of the things I'd, I'd recommend is making sure that you find something that has multiple levels of access in in the apis that it gives yeah. you so that's that's Honest thing, you know, I'm, again, I'm biased, but the thing that I think sets uh, Anki's SDK apart is that you can do super high level stuff like turn towards space as one command. Yes. Or you can do very low level stuff like what is pixel 486 in this image? Color, you know, what color is it? And so, you can access it in any way. So you can right. you can start out implementing your own blackjack or, you know, doing something, something um, that's very behavioral or get into the nitty gritty once you're ready. Right, so that's that's important, right? If you choose a platform or technology that only gives you low-level functionality in its API, like give me the pixel mm -hmm. where that object begins, um, instead of uh, how many faces are in this frame, uh, then obviously you're going to have a harder time to begin with uh, yeah. at the lower level instead of the top level. But if you go the other way and you could choose something that has the top level and make sure that it gives you the continuity to, to go towards uh, lower level functionality where there's a lot more power that you can customize and mm -hmm. utilize. Great. Thank you. Okay. I've got one more. Um, what's your programming language of choice? What do you program in? It depends. Uh, it depends on the application. Um, so for, for me personally, it's either Python or C, depending mm -hmm. on what I'm doing. And I use both. And I do mean C, not C++. Right. The original. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so. Um, and, and why is that? Like C is a very low level. Is that because as a hardware engineer, you need to program at that level, right? Yeah. So C is low level. You know, if I'm programming on a microcontroller, there are microcontrollers I can I can program in Python. And for hobby projects, I almost exclusively use Python because if I'm doing a hobby project and it's a question, it's like, do I buy a one dollar microcontroller that I have to program in C, or do I buy a ten dollar Raspberry Pi that I can program in Python? Well, those nine dollars are totally worth my time on the yeah. weekend. Right, like there's there's no reason why um, for a hobby project I would ever use a low level language. For my professional work, no, it's like in order to make a real product that behaves reliably, that can be sold at a reasonable cost. It's like I need to be able to optimize everything down to the matter. Right. But you know, I will take that back and give the one caveat is if I'm doing a hobby project and I need it to be completely repeatable and a very high degree of reliability, I will still use C because it is a more deterministic mm -hmm. language. Yeah. So um, I guess you need to use the right tool for the job and a roboticist cannot rely on a single technology, right? As you said earlier, Robot Garden is uh, an example. Just to build a robot, you need all sorts of different technologies at the hardware and the software level and even at the human yep. level. And therefore, you had to become very skilled in um, many of those technologies and including programming languages, even though you wouldn't consider yourself a programmer, would you? Like you're more like a... a a hardware engineer? Uh, so I'm a hardware engineer. I, I spend a lot of time writing software. Yeah, because hardware is not what it used to be. It's like hardware, yeah. software is connected. So yeah, it's, 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 it's all connected. You know, I spend a lot of time reading data sheets. I spend time doing systems yeah. engineering. I spend time doing programming. That's the, the role of a systems engineer is uh, to be uh, a little bit in all the different domains. Well, and with that, I think we can um, end here. Okay. <laughs> it was a, an awesome conversation. Thank you very much for that, Daniel. 
Um, if, if people would like to get in touch with you or with Anki or uh, you know the other projects that you do, uh, what is the best way for them to do so? Are you on social media, email? Um, how? Email is definitely the best way to reach me. Mm-hmm. Um, daniel.t.kastner at iee.org. Um, I'm sure you have it in the show notes. Um, I don't always respond right away, uh, but I, I will respond. Uh, Be patient. <laughs> We need AI for my inbox um, that can intelligently reply to people instead of just saying, I'll get back to you one day. Uh, <laughs> anyway, that's a different story. <laughs> Thank you very much, Daniel. And uh, as I, uh, again, I uh, really uh, enjoyed our conversation and uh, we'll be in soon. Okay. Thank you. That's all for this episode. The notes for this episode that include links to many of the resources mentioned and information on how to get in touch with Daniel are available on our website, techexplorations.com. Each episode comes with its own page on the Tech Explorations website and a goldmine of information in the notes. This Stemius podcast episode was produced by Tech Explorations. Do you have any questions or suggestions? Would you like to nominate a friend or colleague to be our guest? Please email us at pa at Subscribe to us on iTunes by searching for the name of our podcast, STEMiverse. That's S-T-E-M-I-V-E-R-S-E. Thanks for listening and we'll see you again next time.